I like to sell tacos that you probably, you're not going to find anywhere else in, in town, but you're also not going to find it in, in Mexico or the States. Um, they're kind of really unique to us. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. You can never pick what sort of venue might achieve cult status, a crowd and customer base that will travel, queue and champion a food brand and its identity. What are the key ingredients in creating a food offering that not only dishes up a cracking feed and experience, but has a life of its own outside of the four walls too? Toby Wilson is the founder and executive chef of Rico's Tacos. Toby, how are you? Good, man. How are you? I'm good. It's good to catch up with you. You've got a pretty uh, interesting brand. It's very popular, Rico's Tacos. How are things going at the moment? Yeah, good. It's been busy. Um, obviously, just opened the new venue, um, what, three, four weeks ago now. So, um, yeah, that's always a, a pretty pretty hectic time, but getting through it so far. Well, you've created uh, a brand in Rico's Tacos that has sort of received you know, an amazing sort of uh, interest by consumers and they followed you around. What's it like sort of having a brand with such a sort of weird sort of cult status? It's, yeah, it's great. It's flattering. Um, it's pretty, um, yeah, it, it feels like we've kind of had the, the same brand for eight years now, although the, the brand itself has changed, kind of going from Ghost Boy in the, the food court to where we are now. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. It just kind of gives us the confidence that uh, when we open something, we feel like people are going to be there, um, which is always a nice, a nice feeling. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. And it gives us um, a, a confidence to be able to kind of push the boat on some of our food items a bit. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, throw pig's ears in the mix and we know that people will come and get them now like uh it it gives us like we we know our customer really well now um and we know what they will and and what respond to food businesses are challenging on their own but are there things that you've done to sort of try and get this cult status or has it just created a life of its own yeah it's pretty uh pretty organic i think it's just been a response to um, people liking uh, a, a place that has uh, an identity of some sort and wants to do things for the right reasons, I guess. Um, like we, we're not just purely trying to cater to a mass market. Like we, we, we are intentionally a bit niche at times. Um, and I think, yeah, that just kind of results in a particular clientele. Tell us a little bit about Rico's Tacos and what you're doing there. Yeah, so Rico's was born out of uh, lockdown, as many other businesses are. Um, I was running the Taco King kitchen out of the George. Uh, that was a, a casualty of the first lockdown. Um, I found myself pretty pretty bored and jobless quickly. Um, and it was a bit of a stopgap initially, just like a... Um, what am I going to do in the next few months? Order online and then stick it in a petrol station. And um, I was speaking to Nick Hill about it from Porcine, um, who was talking to the guys at Messina because they'd done a few things together. And um, 
he ended up mentioning it to them and they reached out to me and they were like, hey, why don't we kind of make it a fixture at our car park at the Gelato Factory in um, Rosebury at the time. Um, so we met up with them and they were able to, obviously, they're such a massive company. They have resources and, and contacts that, that we don't and they knew a guy that had this unreal old school big kind of rectangular food truck that we could rent uh, and also they've got that huge uh, prep kitchen inside um, so they were just like hey why don't you come and set up in our car park for an indefinite amount of time um, and just kind of prep here and, and see how it goes um, and that's kind of how it was born and then I, we, we also got to feed off their PR machine and stuff, which is such a great springboard for a, um, a brand new company. Um, and then we also got to trade off the, um, still a bit of buzz behind Taco King. It was only a, a year old when we closed. So uh, there was kind of, yeah, as you said, a bit of a, a loyal following to that as well. Tell us a little bit about the offering uh, that you have at the moment at Rico's. Um, so we've got um, a, a much more extensive menu than we used to have, uh, given we have a much bigger kitchen than we used to. We've kind of just gone from a 25-seater to a 200. So obviously that comes with, um, you know, the ability to do a bit more. Uh, always taco-focused, as the name would suggest. Um, I love Mexican food as a, as a category in an entire world. Um, but it's, it's really like this, the street tacos that kind of took my heart when I was over there. Um, so I'm trying to, uh, kind of stay true to that and not stray too far from that kind of street level stuff. Um, it, it's probably all of the inspiration comes from, uh, like authentic street tacos, but we don't inherently try and be super authentic about the delivery. Um, it's still reflective of, of a, a Sydney palette for lack of a better phrase. Um, it feels, um, I don't know, it doesn't feel particularly genuine to just be like a carbon copy of, of what we'd have over there, particularly as a, a non-Mexican. Um, so yeah, it's gonna, we have like six tacos at a time. Uh, we have a rotating weekly special, which is really fun. We just get to come up with a new dish every week and that keeps someone like me occupied because I get bored very quickly um, and then we kind of do like a range of uh, tortas, quesadillas, tostadas, all kind of hand stuff. I um, get a bit upset when I see people using cutlery in the venue uh, but yeah I, it, they're all kind of snacky things. I, I like the, the idea behind people choosing their own adventure by kind of getting four or five different small things and and kind of going the way they want um, versus having one big plate. Although we do have a bit of that stuff. Um, but yeah, mostly it's like these kind of small street food, snacky, hand-eaten items. When did the interest in tacos sort of emerge for you? Uh, so I had, I was in specialty coffee for quite a while, um, as all people studying music were, I think. Um and uh, I, I had a cafe for three years down in Glebe, uh, which I sold uh, in 2014 and then kind of went for my first trip to North America, um, which 
it was the first time seeing that culinary landscape and um, kind of trying Mexican food for the first time in LA uh, was, was like a big eye opener for me. I think Sydney has generally like pretty great representations of most cuisines. Um, but it was like crazy how different Mexican food was there to what it was at home and what I'd grown up with. Um, so I thought when I'd come home, I'd play around with that and explore it a bit further. Um, and it was kind of just never really meant to be a career path and it just turned into one. Well, I want to explore sort of how that all came to fruition and what you're doing with Rico's tacos shortly. But take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play for you growing up? Yeah, it was always like very into food. Both my parents are really good cooks. Um, we kind of, I grew up in Sydney's Northern Beaches, so like not a, um, not a culinary hotspot by any means of the imagination. But um, it was something like my parents were always into and um, we, we kind of would always go to the local Indian and Chinese joints and like what was around in the 90s. Um, and then just like even I've, like Jamie Oliver and stuff being on TV and in the late 90s and there being like some excitement behind cooking and, and food and kind of learning new things. It was always something that kind of um, spoke to me a bit. Uh, it was never something I really thought I'd do professionally, but it just kind of organically happened and I just wouldn't want to be anywhere else. You briefly mentioned um, music. Uh, was was that an avenue that you were going down for your career before you sort of moved into food? Yeah, I, I was like absolutely adamant um, that I was going to be a, a rock star for like most of my teen years. Um, just like was so certain it was going to happen. Um, and... Then kind of finished up high school. I mean, I wasn't even in a band, so I don't know where this confidence came from. Um, <laughs> just, just thought it would uh, materialize in, in some way. Uh, and then I went and yeah, studied music at a tertiary level. And um, it just kind of uh, was one of those things where you're like, oh, this is like a passion of mine that's being ruined by pursuing it as a career. Um, and it kind of became apparent pretty quickly that I just like didn't want to ruin my love of playing music um, by studying it. I don't know if that makes sense, but it just like it really like killed killed the passion for me. It, it turned it into a job, right? Um, and in the meantime, got into hospitality. To um, you know, music isn't famous for uh, for for the big bucks at the low level, so. I had to survive, um, so I was just kind of working at local cafes and whatnot, and that kind of, I, I luckily ended up in, in the right spots with the right people, and it kind of lit a spark for me. Well, tell us a little bit about that period of time. You mentioned specialty coffee and how you sort of immersed yourself in that world. What were the sort of venues and people and experiences that you had during that journey? Um, I fortuitously ended up in... Um, this cafe that was using Five Senses, which at the time was like the, one of the, the big names in a, a kind of burgeoning new specialty coffee industry. Um, and people that worked there kind of uh, took me under their wing a bit. Uh, I went down to Melbourne and saw what was happening there, kind of 
2011 era when it was really taking off. Um, and it was evident that it was like a really exciting place and time to be um, industry-wise. There was like a lot of things happening and the scene was changing rapidly uh, and a lot of people were catching on, uh, but it was still kind of at ground level. Um, I went and worked at Le Mans for a little period of time, which was um, the, the spot really. Um, it was probably, you know, Sydney's premier cafe for a, a handful of years in terms of what they were producing on a food and coffee level. Um, and I feel like I served you there once. You did, I remember. Yeah. This, this, is, this has gone way back. But, um, yeah, that's right. That was before yeah, was, grey hair and baldness. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I was only there for a, a handful of months. Um and then uh, I kind of ended up opening my own place pretty shortly after, um, just with the power of naivety and being 21 and, and thinking, uh, you know, that same confidence that made me think I was going to be a rock star. I thought I could run a cafe. Um, got away with this one, though, which was, which was lucky. But, uh, yeah, I think, like, at the time, there kind of weren't that many venues, you know. It was, like, single origin, mecca, um, the source up in Mossman. Um, and yeah, there, there kind of wasn't a whole lot going on. So I just kind of frequented the five spots and tried to learn as much as I could as, on a consumer level and then kind of launched my own place, um, which was you know, a great learning curve and a, and a good time. Well, well, tell us about finding the venue for, for, for your own place and, and what you built there. Uh, yeah, obviously I was like, 21, very, um, just no idea what I was doing really, um, zero mentorship, um, like a bit of guidance from my dad who's like a, a entrepreneur in his own right, he's run businesses ever since I've been alive and, and beyond, um, but I was just trying to find a, a place that had uh, some some unique feel to it that was already special in its own way before I, I jumped in uh, and ended up finding this spot uh, just opposite Glebe Markets, which was 18 metres long and 1.7 metres wide. And it was like this huge, it was basically a corridor with a window. Um, and I, I like, I'm a, a fan of the, the weird in general. Um, and that, that kind of was a, a great deal and it already had a DA for a cafe and it was ready to just kind of plonk a machine in and put a lick of paint in and, and get started. Do you have any stories of what it was like setting the business up and were you surprised by the challenges of running your own business? Um, the surprises came later when they caught up. Um, at, at the start, I was like, oh, this is like... You know, pretty pretty easy. I'm just I've hired a mate, and we're running a cafe, and it's pretty chill. Um, and then like I didn't know what like a business activity statement was, or like how much tax I was going to have to pay. And then after nine months, I get a call from um, the the accountant. It's like, hey, you earn like you owe X thousand dollars, and I was like, oh, I just bought awnings for seven grand, and now I have no money. Um, and like this kind of stuff that you like, you don't, you don't necessarily l learn before you're opening a business unless 
you're a mature person who's <laughs> gone and tried to learn it first. Like I, I got no, never studied business. I, I never really looked into it. I thought it was going to be like, I was 21, right? Um, and then that, that was like a steep learning curve. Um, and then we were able to like work our way out of it, um, and, which was a great experience. Um, although it was a stressful one. Um, but apart from that, like that was probably the easiest business I've ever run. Um, it was simple. It was just like sandwiches and coffee and it was at a, a time where the market wasn't saturated, um, which it, it, you know, there's a specialty coffee joint on, on every corner in Sydney now. Um, so at, at the time, people would travel for that kind of stuff. Um, whereas now it's like a local amenity almost. Well, you sort of made a name for yourself with that business and you were named in timeouts, Sydney's 30 under 30. And uh, why did why did you sell the business a couple of years later? Uh, it was at a, like, like I said before, I get like, I get bored very easily. Um, three years is a good innings for me in, in anything. Um, it got to a point where I was just running the business at a, at a maintenance level um, and without further investment, there wasn't a whole lot we could do to build upon it, um, which is like a, a frustrating purgatory of just like, I can't get any bigger because we're not making enough money to like put more into it. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not failing. So there's no need to close it. Um, so it was like, let's just like investigate if I can sell this and use that money to fund a new project, um, which is what ended up happening. Um, yeah, it, it worked out temporarily pretty well until the next chapter. Tell us a bit about sort of that next chapter when you started to move into um, sort of the area that you're in now, even though that, you know, the, the what you were cooking and delivering was a bit different. Yeah. So, at, um, at, at the cafe, I'd kind of in, inadvertently spent, I kind of accidentally became a, a self-taught cook. Um I ended up in the kitchen there for three years and really enjoying it. And then uh, once I sold the business, I went and worked at Sample Coffee in St. Peter's run by um, Ruben, who's a good friend of mine, uh, with the intention of maybe getting into coffee roasting and kind of delving more into coffee a bit. And then within a couple of months, the chef quit and I ended up in the kitchen again. Um, it's happened a few times in my career where I like tried to do something and I just ended up in the kitchen. Uh, and then after a while, I just stopped um trying to resist what was going on um and then i was just just like trying to uh just biding my time waiting for the right idea to come past or the right venue or the right opportunity um but the the food i'd had in la and and texas was kind of still just kind of in my head and i was like why don't i just open a um a little pop-up for three months um, where I, I make some tacos and I use that um, to just explore it myself. Like I'd, I'd be learning as I cook and also trying to showcase a little bit about what I'd seen overseas in Sydney. Like this is 2016 where, where Mexican food in Sydney is nowhere near what it is now. Um, it was, you know, El Loco. Uh, and then the fast food chains, really. Um, so yeah, I, I 
went for a, uh, a walk in Chinatown and went down to one of my favorite food courts at the time and they had a Felice sign and I was like, this is a probably a bad idea, but I, I have to find out what, <laughs> what's going to happen if I do this. Um, so I just rang the number on the, on the sign and uh, spoke to the landlord there and he was super keen on the idea, which was um, surprising. Uh, and he was just like, yeah, I'm trying to get like younger operators through here. I want to kind of push beyond the traditional. Um, and he's like, you guys would be perfect. Uh, and we saw, he was like, but the shortest lease I can give you is six months. Um, and I was like, all right, let's, let's give it a go. Um, and it, it was just like such a tricky venue. It was downstairs and you couldn't get in uh, outside of hours. So we couldn't get deliveries in the morning. Um, we had to close at 8.30 p.m. every night, which is, you know, bang in the middle of dinner service. Um, we couldn't sell our own alcohol. So it was just, had so many limitations, but um, I was just stubbornly locked in on it. Um, and it like, it, it, it opened to like great fanfare. Uh, it was pretty well received. Um, but it was just like so far away from our, our market in a sense. Um, people had to be there at lunchtime in Chinatown or they had to be there for early dinner um, in, in areas where they're probably not always kind of congregating. Um, so there was just like a bit of dissonance between like what we were able to provide and, and what like people that follow us want. Um, so after the first, in, the first few months were, were crazy and they were really successful and then it just dramatically started to nosedive as the, um, you know, the shiny new veneer worn off. Uh, and then we got picked up by the, the Tio's guys, um, Jeremy and Alex were looking for a new food operator for, for Tio's and we moved in there for a little while and, um, just like we were, we're such small operators that it just kind of turned out that we were just like losing money by the day. Um, and we, we ended up closing after that. Um, but like all the money I got from the sale of the cafe ended up disappearing in, uh, my funky little experiment. How did you, how did you manage to turn it around? Um, very slowly. Uh, I was pretty, you know, disillusioned after that, that kind of bad experience with running a business. Um, and like run, running a business solo in particular, it's like, it's, it's so challenging. There's always stuff you're going to suck at. Um, and those things become just like glaringly highlighted. Um, and you can't, you can't run from them. Like if you're bad at admin, you can't just not do it. Um, and then the stuff you suck at starts to take away from the stuff you're good at. You're like, I can't be, I don't have any creative energy because I'm trying to do bookkeeping and this kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, basically I, I hadn't, I think I'd basically drawn a line under doing tacos ever again uh, in my head and um, kind of went back to working in coffee 
just for some friends until I again figured out what I wanted to do and then um, a friend of mine, I was actually on my way out to hospitality um, and had applied to go to award school for advertising. Um, yeah, I was just kind of a bit, a bit checked out of the whole thing. Um, and then a friend of mine rang me up and he was like, hey, do you want to open a restaurant with me? Uh, I was like, what do you, what do you mean? Um, <laughs> super casual proposal. And he was like, we've just got this venue uh, that's free and has a kitchen in it and we could walk in and open in a week. Um, it's going to cost you nothing, so you can't lose anything. Um, I mean, you can, you can definitely lose something. But uh, I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to have my name on it um, in terms of any contracts. I was like, I'm not, not ready to do that. But if you want me to kind of uh, run it, I'll, I'll consider it. Uh, and that was basically my first restaurant job was kind of being the head chef of, of Bad Hombres, which again was meant to be three months and is maybe in its sixth or seventh year now. Um, I haven't been a part of it for a long time, but um, yeah, me and, and Sean McManus were, were kind of the, the opening team for that. Um, and it kind of just lit the fire under me again and, and kind of reaffirmed that hospitality is where I want to be. Um, kind of the only thing I really took from from that particular experience. Um, but yeah, it, it just kind of, it was good. It was like I had this this crisis of, of, of career and like where do I want to be and that kind of really affirmed that, yeah, I want to be cooking and I want to be running my own kitchens. Um, and then uh, from there I went and worked at Pizar, the Turkish wood fire joint in Canterbury. Um, yeah, which was like uh, a pretty left of field move, but such a great experience. Um, and, you know, Attila, like myself, is, is self-taught and flavor forward and um, learn a lot about a new cuisine and a new method of cooking uh, and kind of really took away from that his love of aggressive seasoning and, and big flavors and, and, and really bold cooking. Um, and then got the call up from Jamie Worth from Drink and Dine saying he was going to launch this new group. And um, yeah, then ended up at the, the Duke first and then launched the, uh, the, the George and Taco King. And then the, that's where the whole taco thing restarted. You mentioned how you get bored easily and you also like weird things. Tell us about porridge and competing on the world stage. Yeah, so um, I found about I found out about the World Porridge Championships on um, just one of those late night internet clicking Wikipedia links. Just uh, yeah, I, I can't explain how I ended up on that page, um, but I, I like immediately found it um, pretty gripping. Um, that's like right up my alley, this kind of like folksy, um, pretty humorous um, thing that's also like highly competitive. Um, and I was just like, should I do this? And I was like, I've just lost all of my money. I'm probably not going <laughs> to fly over to the other side of the world to 
make some gruel. That's um, that's like relax a second. And then uh, I just found myself thinking about it every year since I found out about it. Um, and then it was last year in winter. I just made myself a bowl of porridge one morning and I was like, oh, I wonder when this competition is on. Uh, and I looked it up and the entries closed that night, um, which gave me little time to rationalize it, which is perfect. Um, so I just threw my name in, in the ring um, and then got accepted. And then I was like, fuck, I might as well just go. Uh, so I flew over to Scotland and uh, went to this competition, which is unreal. It's like 30 people from around the world. Um, cooking porridge using only oats, water, and salt. Um, and like they're, they're stressing out and people are sweating and it's like highly competitive. And, and we're all just making gruel in a town hall in a tiny town in the, the highlands, like three hours north of Glasgow. Take us on that journey. What was the competition like for you and what was you know the quality of your uh, porridge? So I, I kind of thought if, if I'm going to, do this um being so far away and it being like a pretty expensive trip i was like let's let's go hard and i kind of was sourcing oats from all around the world and trying them all um trying to figure out what made good and bad porridge tried different waters different salts different soaking times like really went through all the the techniques um and then settled on a a local grower in new south wales and um, yeah, so I, f I literally flew over to Scotland with um, a bag full of pots and pans and backpack oats and this kind of salt I'd sourced, um, which would have been an interesting one to explain had customs pulled me aside. Uh, but got there and then in the morning, they've got like an opening ceremony. <laughs> you, like, you march down the pretty much the only street in this town to a full Scottish marching band with bagpipes. Um, wielding your country's flag for about 100 metres until you usher it into the town hall. Um, and then when you get there, there's a, a guy in a kilt doing a whiskey tasting and the local school sung the porridge song, whatever that is. Uh, and it's like a real wholesome event. And like all the competitors are friends uh, and they meet at the pub afterwards and there's like a local Scottish band. Um, but, but when it's on, it's on and it's like, it's fierce. Uh, but yeah, got through to the finals um, in the in the, the debut performance. Uh, I and then I went back two weeks ago actually um, to see if I couldn't uh, kind of do one better. Um, and then I ended up getting to the finals again. I was the only person in the the last two finals back to back, and. Uh, I ended up getting getting bested by somebody who found out about the competition through an article about me, which is a real real own goal. Um, I kind of stitched myself up there, but uh, I think that might be it for my competitive porridge career. Um, I like I'd go back every year if if, if it was remotely close, but it's uh, it's becoming an expensive hobby for. Um, something pretty ridiculous well, what makes a great porridge and isn't there a special spoon involved as well yeah the spurtle um she's no more than a, a stick really it's like a 
it's like a, a rod that's slightly tapered at the end. The idea being you can kind of get it into the corners of the pot, which a rounded spoon, uh, look, realistically can, but <laughs> don't tell the Scots that. Um, what makes a good porridge is uh, definitely having um, oats that are, are steel ground or, or so steel cut or stone ground versus rolled oats. Rolled oats are kind of like flattened and then steamed and they're just kind of gummy and gluey. Um, but if you get kind of the whole grain that's been cut and then you soak it um, and then cook it out for 15, 20 minutes um, and then like a good, a good bit of salt. Um, season it like you would in any other grain really. Like if you're making I don't know, rice or bread and you kind of want it to have that little bit of like a savory, salty, salty vibe. And then once you add, if you decide to go in like a sweet direction, you add maple syrup, brown sugar, honey, whatever, it, it kind of gives off that salty, sweet kind of thing that's great anyway. Um, there's not much else to it really. Like th there is and there isn't, but just making that bowl is like, Close, close to as good as it gets. It's, it's an incredibly simple thing, like in the way that sushi is simple. Tell us a bit about your food at, at Rico's. Is there a, a taco or two that sort of is, exemplifies your approach to tacos? Um, yeah, I think uh, at the moment we're doing a, a chicken taco with a almond and coffee mole, um, which is, I guess, like an example of uh, getting inspiration from the past and then applying like a bit of a, uh, a ingredients that are really familiar to people here. Um, so it's it's based off a uh, mole poblano, which is like the the mole that most people are familiar with. It's like chocolate, spices, nuts, fruit, seeds, all of that. Um, but it's that it's that chocolate heavy mole that people are aware of. Um, so we make that and we use quite a lot of almonds. And then we've got this kind of like dark roasted coffee through it that gives this kind of roasty, slightly bitter flavor. Um, so that that's like one that, you know, you, you won't, I like to sell tacos that you probably, you're not going to find anywhere else in, in town, but you're also not going to find it in, in Mexico or the States. Um, they're kind of really unique to us. Um, and then really like this is a tricky answer but it's like the, the special every week um that is where like our identity really shines i think like this week i'm do i just got back from turkey um so i'm making a kind of donna shawarma style taco um kind of like shaved lamb shoulder uh sumac onions um tahini dressing like this kind of stuff uh so it's still a tortilla, it's like salty fatty meats, it's a salsa, it's onions, it's citrus juice. It's like all of the things that make a taco, but with like a completely different set of ingredients. Um, that's that's like really fun to me, and that's kind of what, what we're about, I reckon. Well, you're always doing something interesting. Um, what, what do you love about what you do? Um, I It's just like an en um, endless source of creative exploration. Like there's no... There's no end to to food. Like you can't you can't make it all, and it's just like I'll I'll have 
dinner somewhere and it will, it'll give me an idea for the next taco. Um, or I'll read an article or I'll see a, an Instagram post. Uh, and there's just like endless um, inspiration for the next dish. And then also just like the, the industry itself and the people within it. Um, collaborating with other chefs. We've always been really big on the, the whole guest chef thing from from back at like Ghost Boy. We had takeovers every week um, to next month. I'm going down to Melbourne to cook with uh, Raf Rashid from Taco Truck down there. Um, so just getting to work with people like this and inevitably you'll, you'll pick up a, a technique or a flavor or an ingredient or like a salsa that someone might use and that'll make its way into your arsenal. Um, so that, that just kind of never-ending learning, exploration, collaboration kind of stuff really does it for me. Well, Toby, it's an absolute pleasure to catch up with you today on Deep in the Weeds to hear part of your story. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. We'll do, mate. Thanks for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>